Hello, and welcome to The Worldly Philosophers Go to Washington, from Alexander Hamilton to Janet Yellen, a podcast on the history of political economy and its relation to economic policy. Today's episode, Is the Worldly Philosophy Dead? Robert Hellbrunner, who coined the term in his classic book on the lives of the great economists, thought that the definition of the worldly philosophy was essentially based on two ideas. On the one hand, the worldly philosophy, or political economy, was a science about the most mundane of activities, uh, the pursuit of uh, material well-being, necessary for survival. On the other hand, Hilbrunner associated the worldly philosophy with the ideas, the vision, uh, he would say, of the great economists, uh, Smith, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, Karl Marx, John Maynard Keynes, and his own teacher at Harvard, Joseph Schumpeter, going all the way to modern economics, or at least the, the economics of his time. Incidentally, the idea of the title came from Hellbrunner's editor, who was also an editor of Harper's magazine. They met for lunch, and Hellbrunner was trying to convey the idea of a book about the lives and ideas of great economists, and he was afraid that a book on economics uh, could be seen as too abstract and detached from reality to appeal to a large audience and wanted to convey that the subject matter was relevant for everyday life activities. The ideas of these great thinkers were not only fascinating for him, but also relevant for the layperson. He was thinking something along the lines of material philosophy, and the editor said uh, that what he meant was to say the word of philosophy. Uh, and of course, the term entered the lexicon. So the word of philosophy as a discipline appeared in the 17th century in the transition from feudalism to capitalism in mercantile societies in Western Europe. It was essentially a science concerned with, uh, uh, as he suggested, uh, with the most ordinary of all endeavors, the pursuit of wealth, something that Christian theology had seen in a negative light and that had been considered sinful, or at least some of activities associated with capitalism had been seen as sinful. Banking activities in particular, uh, usury, which uh, were central to the rise of mercantile uh, capitalism, uh, were seen as damning, uh, and there was a slow process of cultural change that made the pursuit of wealth and the profit motive to be seen in a positive light. Political economy, to some extent, was developed to provide a philosophical foundation and ideological cover for the rise of markets and the profit motive. A second and important uh, way in which Hellbrunner defined the worldly philosophy is the idea that all great economists, all those that he discussed in his book, and many others that will uh, be discussed in this podcast, uh, <coughs> had a vision. And uh, this vision was to uh, be contrasted with analysis, with the formal understanding of how capitalist economy, uh, economies actually worked. Uh, the analytical framework was built upon the foundation of this great vision, uh, which according to Schumpeter uh, was a pre-scientific pre but not pre-analytical, and that it provided the intuition about uh, what was relevant and what was not relevant in the economy. Uh, Hellbrunner correctly pointed out that all great uh, e economists had a vision about uh, capitalism, how it worked, how it would evolve, and whether it would thrive or collapse. Anna Smith, often seen as the founding father of political economy, was concerned about how uh, a system of perfect liberty, uh, the way he referred to the process of competition, would lead to division of labor and how that would be able to explain the wealth of nations. 
and hence why some countries were developed and while others remained uh, backward. Uh, Smith mostly uh, cheerful disposition about the possibilities of liberal capitalism was challenged by David Ricardo, who put the conflict between landed aristocracy and the rising industrialists of the Industrial Revolution at the center of his economic drama. Uh, by this time, England was not only being transformed by industrialization, uh, but the displacement of workers in traditional sectors, uh, leading to riots against machines, the so-called Luddites, and the repression from authorities in the infamous uh, Peterloo massacre, and would um, uh, and was also, I should say, enduring an embargo during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, which restricted importation of grain from from the continent. Uh, England was subsumed in a debate about the advantages of free trade, and the imposition of tariffs to protect uh, the production of grain in England, the notorious Corn Laws, favored the landed. Uh, interest against uh, manufacturing interests. Um, and England um, would be forced because of these tariffs to um, um, uh, produce more grain on its own using its limited amount of fertile land and that would lead to higher rents for the um, scarcely available land uh, and, and higher rents I should say for the landowners and, and 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 you know these higher these higher rents would squeeze profits, and the lower rate of profit in turn would lead to lower levels of capital accumulation and growth. So in the Ricardian drama, class conflict would be uh, at the basis of the problems of capitalism. Karl Marx, the prophet of doom, uh, would elevate the Ricardian system to new levels, putting now the emphasis of class conflict. Uh, on the tension between the rising um, industrial bourgeoisie and increasingly destitute proletariat. Um, in this view, the incessant process of technical change required uh, in capitalist societies to extract surplus value and exploit the working class would lead to a diminishing rate of profit and perhaps the collapse of the capitalist system. Uh, if not the fallen rate of profit, Marx argued that recurrent financial crises and recessions caused by the functioning of laissez-faire capitalism um, would, would lead to uh, the rise of organized labor and a communist revolution. In fact, John Maynard Keynes, uh, much later, uh, in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution and during the Great Depression, um, would suggest that the specter of both communism and fascism uh, in Western Europe uh, would require significant government intervention uh, to save capitalism uh, and civilized society uh, from itself. Um, so so the, in the Keynesian story, uh, a more positive uh, um, disposition towards the future of capitalism uh, was possible under certain circumstances. Um, in order to produce full employment, the socialization of investment and the euthanasia of the financial elites with heavy taxation would be necessary to, to save you know, the system from itself. Even Joseph Schumpeter, uh, Hellbrunner's uh, conservative professor at Harvard, uh, thought that the lack of dynamism of capitalism, um, in particular of the large corporations that appeared during the Gilded Age, uh, phase of capitalism uh, would eventually lead to the demise of, of the capitalist system and, um, uh, and the rise of socialism. By the 1950s and 60s, 
the post-war prosperity and the open disputes with uh, the Soviet uh, planned economy um, increasingly opened space for, the, uh, for an undercurrent that would uphold a more cheerful uh, view of, of markets and a more negative view of government, <coughs> pardon me, of government intervention. And in this view, the, excess of, the excesses of the New Deal and regulation would stifle growth and the full potential for prosperity uh, implicit in capitalism. These economists associated uh, with neoliberal views uh, of the capitalist society, often coming from uh, the University of Chicago, dominated intellectually by the ideas of Milton Friedman, uh, which promoted a Panglossian uh, optimistic vision of the future of capitalism. All of these economists, whether they exposed optimistic or pessimistic views of societies, had a preoccupation with the great questions of their time. Uh, it was not just that political economy, by this time referred to uh, as simply economics, uh, was a science that dealt with a worldly endeavor, but also that the economists themselves had a preoccupation with the great questions that were faced by capitalist societies. And, um, the future of capitalism was a fundamental concern of the discipline. By the late 1990s, Hellbronner noted that this emphasis on the great questions was passé, and it was almost a secret that economics was about capitalism. The word capitalism did not appear in the most popular manual of principles of economics at the time, uh, the uh, principles uh, textbook by Greg Mankiw uh, from Harvard. Um, and it's interesting that this, this uh, absence, this vanishing of capitalism coincided with the victory of capitalism in the Cold War after the fall of the Wall of Berlin and the collapse of the Soviet Union. The end of history uh, brought, surprisingly, the vanishing of capitalism. And, and in, in an unexpected turn of events, uh, one might say, the death of the worldly philosophy. So, uh, before we go further and, and think uh, critically about uh, the death of the worldly philosophy, we might spend a little bit uh, thinking about the uh, term capitalism. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and I will suggest that perhaps the death of the worldly philosophy or the reports of the death of the worldly philosophy um, might be end, you know, uh, the end of history might have been uh, somewhat exaggerated uh, by the 90s. So the victory of capitalism ideology and the rise of dominance of neoliberalism in economic policy were to some extent built on an inadequate understanding of the meaning of capitalism um, and of how markets uh, in fact do operate. Hellbrunner himself thought in terms of uh, Weberian uh, idea of capitalism following the ideas of Max Weber one in which capitalism is seen as part of a rationalization process in which markets enforce a new form of uh, rationality and the profit motive is at the center of economic life. Uh, that would be contrasted with alternative views of capitalism that would uh, be more doubtful about whether uh, the profit motive uh, and the existence of markets are enough to justify the existence of, of uh, a capitalist system. Max Weber did, in fact, uh, think that capitalism was associated to eras of prosperity in antiquity and that capitalism existed in the ancient world. Uh, that should not be surprising since markets and the profit motive did, in fact, 
exist in antiquity. Uh, the discussion of what we would now refer as capitalist social formations was a preoccupation that uh, the early classical political economy authors, uh, even though they did not use the term, uh, you know, were concerned with. Adam Smith and, and Turgot, uh, a finance minister of uh, Louis XVI and one of the uh, physiocrats, the first school to refer uh, to themselves as economists, uh, one might add, argued that society evolved in their ability to produce a surplus over the material needs for reproduction of society and distinguish phases of economic development. Uh, there were hunting societies, pastoral societies, agricultural societies, and commercial societies, uh, the term that they refer to what we now would call capitalism. David Ricardo explicitly talks about capitalists, even if there is no discussion of capitalism per se in his classic book uh, on the principles of uh, political economy and taxation. And Karl Marx, uh, uh, in, in his classic book, uh, you know, uh, Capital, uh, does use the term capitalism and, and, and discusses uh, uh, building on, on the ideas of uh, classical political economists um, on the historical evolution of material well-being and explicitly uh, discuss what he refers to as modes of production and the specificity of capitalism vis-a-vis -vis, uh, you know, ancient or slave moral production um, or other modes of production uh, he identified, including feudalism, uh, you know, and and what he you know referred to in somewhat Eurocentric fashion as the Asiatic mode of production. Uh, but all of this suggested that capitalism was a new phenomenon uh, in existence uh, in antiquity. Capitalism was uh, more than just existence of markets and a profit motive. In Marx's view, uh, capitalism was essentially associated to the separation of workers from the means of production and characterized by the lack of control over the process of production itself, in contrast to you know, the artisans in pre-industrial societies that controlled the process of production. Workers were now forced to sell their labor force in the market and in order to obtain their subsistence, uh, and that was uh, exactly the way in which workers were exploited uh, in capitalism that differentiated it from other modes of production. So uh, the market mediated the exploitation and, uh, uh, rather than coercion. And uh, so um, in this sense, the word of philosophy deals with this very mundane sort of activity uh, and that it's associated to the pursuit of wealth, but also associated to the exploitation of workers that are forced to sell labor force uh, in the market. Uh, in other words, capitalism is a system in which production for the market by private agents to obtain profits occurs and uh, one in which the mechanism to obtain surplus from workers is also mediated by market relations. The end of the worldly philosophy, uh, you know, as we refer to the phenomenon that Hellbrunner uh, identified in the 1990s, to some extent came to camouflage this understanding uh, of the nature of capitalism at a moment in which uh, capitalism was triumphant. Uh, economists themselves were less prepared for, for the task uh, uh, of understanding that. Um, and, and to some extent, the training of economists in the more prestigious graduate programs uh, is to blame. Uh, Helbronner argued that the end of the world of philosophy essentially from, uh, was related to two interrelated phenomena. 
On the one hand, the increasing formalization or mathematization of economics made economists less likely to understand the broader issues. For example, economic history that was a required course in, in, in graduate uh, programs um, was dropped from the curriculum. Um, in you know in, in in all major programs that taught uh, you know PhDs uh, in economics, the history of ideas that had uh, even less space uh, almost vanished from all discussions of of uh, economics, um, e even in liberal arts schools. One is reminded here of Kenneth Bolden's famous dictum that mathematics brought rigor to economics, but also brought rigor mortis. Economists became more technocratic, more akin to technicians. Uh, than broad thinkers and um, broad thinkers ab about society in general, one might say, and less understanding of interdisciplinarity. Um, uh, and, and the preoccupations with the great questions of capitalism became irrelevant uh, and to some extent seen with, uh, with, uh, with the region uh, within the profession. A second important change was the increasing role of academic or professional economists in places of political power. Um, and, in, you know, and in charge of, of what one may call the policy levers of the economy. In other words, economists with doctoral degrees from the respected universities became the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, as was, was the case with, say, Arthur Burns in the 70s or Treasury Secretary, for example, with George Schultz, uh, also in the 70s, both you know, during the administration of, uh, of Richard Nixon. Uh, and these trends have extended to more recent times. Uh, you know, professional economists like Bern Bernanke, Larry Summers, Janet Yellen, um, all have occupied the commanding heights of the economy in both Democratic and Republican uh, administrations. In this sense, the rise of the technocrats together with this lack of vision um, and, um, in economics uh, was what um, led to the, uh, the death of the world of philosophy. Um, and it was the rise of economics um, uh, professionally, uh, what uh, the economics editor of the, the New York Times, Benjamin Appelman, uh, you know, has called uh, the economics hour. Um, uh, that led to the death uh, of the broader and more pragmatic economics uh, of the past that, uh, that Helbronner referred to as the worldly philosophies. So this pragmatic concern with the needs to promote economic well-being had been part of uh, policymaking in the United States going all the way back to, to Alexander Hamilton, if not uh, even before. Uh, economic policy and economic ideas were always entangled in a dialectical dance in which the ideas of economists shaped economic policy and in turn the needs and the changes in the institutional framework in which policies were pursued forced uh, the economics discipline to rethink its main tenets. Uh, and that interaction of ideas and policies um, has not subsided even with the rise of the technocrat, neoliberalism and, and radical free market ideas. It was, it's worth, for that reason, to think critically about whether uh, history is actually dead and perhaps entertained the idea that Helbronner uh, might have misdiagnosed the death of the world of philosophy. Um, while it might be an exaggeration to suggest that there is a revival of the world of philosophy in course, um, in particular if we think of you know, the old political economy tradition, there are reasons to be somewhat optimistic. 
the notion that economic ideas that are uh, associated to economic policy uh, remain close to the fundamental problems of capitalism and that uh, a certain degree of pragmatism guides the evolution of economics can, cannot completely uh, be dismissed. Any discussion of economic policy will bring uh, the big questions back into the central place in any conversation about the economy. More importantly, the global financial crisis of 2008, with its epicenter in the United States associated to the housing bubble, uh, and the slow recovery afterwards, uh, leading to doubts about the validity of uh, the free market ideology, and the recession caused uh, more recently by the coronavirus pandemic, have only exacerbated these reservations about the limitations of laissez-faire capitalism. Many economists suggest that there are fundamental changes in course about the way American capitalism and global capitalism, one might add, uh, works uh, and um, that have led to this, you know, uh, even before the pandemic, uh, slower growth. Uh, and, and I'll give some examples. Larry Summers, uh, that we cited before, uh, has brought back the discussion of secular stagnation, an old idea, an old idea that was um, developed by Alvin Hansen in the aftermath of World War II, and that has roots in the problems associated with the closing of the frontier analyzed by Frederick Jackson Turner. Summers debates uh, debate with, with Ben Bernanke on, on the relevance of secular stagnation versus the so-called global savings glut to understand the causes of the relatively low levels of growth in the United States and the more fundamental causes of the financial crash in, in 2008 is a good example of the worldly philosophy at, at work. The same can be said about Ken Rogoff's, uh, an ex-chief economist at the IMF, uh, suggesting that the problem uh, is neither secular stagnation nor a global savings glut, but a super cycle of debt. Uh, and and, and uh, all of these ideas can be sort of put together uh, in a broader discussion of, of the limitations of, of American capitalism, for example, in the work of Robert Gordon in his Rise and Fall of, the Ameri of American Growth, uh, that suggests that uh, the third industrial revolution, uh, the one with information technology, uh, has significant uh, differences with the first two industrial revolutions, requiring less infrastructure, infrastructure spending and leading to lower levels of technological innovation. Uh, so these significant changes uh, in technological development would explain um, why we have a less dynamic economy. Uh, even in a sort of broader sense, uh, the discussions in Branko Milanovic's Capitalism Alone about the hegemonic disputes between the um, uh, United States and China uh, are you know, discussions about uh, the, the future of capitalism. A few years after the word capitalism vanished from textbooks, the profession is back debating the deep questions about the future of capitalism and the confrontation of, uh, between uh, what uh, Branko uh, calls following Max Weber again, uh, political capitalism that describes China and some other nations with similar and recent transitions towards capitalism like Vietnam, for example, and what he refers to as liberal meritocratic capitalism in the Western world, particularly in the United States. All of these point to the notion that while the demise of, this, of Soviet socialism came with the death of the worldly philosophy, the crisis of laissez-faire capitalism might have led to its revival.
even though professionally trained economists are increasingly part of policymaking, and even though their views are more technocratic, uh, this does not entail the end of the world of philosophy. Uh, but it is important uh, to emphasize uh, that this was true going back in time. Um, the complicated relation between the profession uh, and policymaking and the great questions of the time uh, was always there. Going back to Alexander Hamilton uh, and even slightly before uh, the first Treasury Secretary, all the way uh, to the colonial period, the great political economists that had some influence in shaping economic policy in the United States were well acquainted with economic theories of their time. And they were uh, in some cases well acquainted with the actual economists that were developing those ideas. Uh, they might have had some important contributions to the field as it was the case with uh, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was personally acquainted with Adam Smith and with the French physiocrats, like the, the leader of the school, François Canet, and wrote a classic pamphlet on the importance of paper currency, in which he uh, warns uh, readers that the subject is complex, but important uh, for their everyday life. Um, and, and these ideas were based on, on his reading of William Petty, the, the first uh, of the great British classical political economists. Um, so uh, some of these ideas were, in fact, as I said, uh, considered highly complex and abstract and detached from the everyday life of the general public, not very differently from uh, modern times. The early policymakers were well acquainted with economic theories and the analytical structure of the ideas of the best economic theory of their times. And those ideas can be uh, as rigorously um, formalized as uh, the more uh, uh, recent economic theories. In fact, uh, the problem with the world of philosophy is not so much the formalization of ideas uh, or the influence of the ivory tower and abstract ideas in economic policy, but the change in the dominant views in economics and the rise of what one may call vulgar economics, and in particular view of economics that has been associated to neoliberal policies. Some of the more unsavory aspects of and consequences of the imposition of their ideas on society is what gives the profession a somewhat deserved bad press. It can be argued that the problem is not so much with the discipline but with a type of dominant view within the profession. And in that spirit, it's worth remembering John, John Robinson's famous dictum that the reason to understand economics is not to have ready-made uh, answers uh, for practical problems, as she said, um, but to avoid being deceived by economists. 